Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So guys, the DNC roll call was such a huge hit last night that I think we should open rational security with a roll call where we all announce where we're joining from, perhaps holding a, a dish a native to our region. Okay, Susan, you go first. I mean, the honest answer is I'm joining from a sheet-lined closet clutching a lukewarm Diet Coke. But I want readers to imagine me on like the sunny beaches of California, you know, repping my, my native land. So this is Tamara Wittes from the Great Lakes State, pure Michigan. And what is our food? Oh, my goodness. Cherries, maybe? This is Ben Wittes joining from the swampiest part of the swamp, <laughs> where we sweat bullets in the summer and pretend that 40 degrees is cold in the winter. The uh, great non-state of the District of Columbia. Uh, this is Steve Vladek coming to you from the University of Texas School of Law in Austin, Texas, where it's a balmy 101 today. That's actually the lowest high temperature we've had this week. It's the first day of orientation. I was supposed to actually be in Swanton, Vermont right now, but you know the virus got in the way. And although I don't have one with me, I, I think the representative food is a breakfast taco. That is. That's a good... We have cherries and breakfast tacos. And I mean, one of the things that you learn when you move to Austin is breakfast tacos. You know, breakfast is not telling you when you're supposed to have the breakfast taco. It's just part of the it's part of the name of the food. A breakfast taco is a taco with eggs in it, but you could have it in the afternoon. Is that what you're exactly saying? Exactly so. Excellent. And now that we've set the scene, the Rational Security Convention can begin. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Near Abroad Edition. I'm acting Shane Harris, the real Shane Harris of the Washington Post, being on vacation. I'm also the permanent Senate-confirmed Benjamin Wittes. Uh, we will get to whether I'm serving in either capacity legally in a little while. And I'm joined here in the virtual Jungle Studio, as well as in person, by Tamara Wittes, and not in person, by Susan Hennessy. And Steve Vladek. Hi, guys. Hi. Oh, no hello. Shane this week. We're shameless. We are shameless. I, I got nothing. I mean, that's I can't top that. If you have to be without Shane Harris, Steve Vladek is the next best thing. A am I the senior official performing the duties of Shane Harris? No, exactly. I, think, I think I'm the senior <laughs> official performing the duties of Shane Harris. You are Senate-confirmed Steve Vladek. <laughs> I'm I'm the snarky, inexperienced GAO lawyer. Yeah, you're you're like the recess appointment. Oh, there we go. All right, on the show today, the Senate Intelligence Committee issues its long-awaited emphasis on the word "long." It's a thousand pages report on Russian electoral interference in 2016 and the counterintelligence risks 
in the Trump campaign, the GAO determines that the leadership of DHS is serving illegally, and the leadership of DHS responds with a big raspberry. And Belarusians have taken to the streets in protest against another stolen elections by longtime strongman Alexander Lukashenko, who has responded by beating them. Susan, the uh, Senate uh, Intelligence Committee report on Russian electoral interference was released yesterday at nearly a thousand pages. It's going to take a lot of digesting, but in important areas, Actually, rather a surprise to me, it does break some significant new ground, and it has put Republican senators responsible for its crafting in somewhat of a difficult position. Uh, It reports with their names on it on a whole lot of stuff that looks a heck of a lot like collusion, even as the Uh, views of the individual members, specifically flags as sort of its main point that it finds no evidence of collusion. And committee chairman, um, acting committee chairman, not Senate confirmed, Marco Rubio issued a long statement yesterday emphasizing that it didn't have any evidence of collusion in it. So what are we to make of a thousand pages of counterterrorism risk described by a bunch of people who say, you know, basically, please don't read our report. Yeah, so it's not just a thousand pages. It's part five. This is the last uh, section of a report that the SSCI has been rolling out uh, really over a number of years. Um, And it it really is a surprisingly substantive document, especially whenever you take it uh, with all of its constituent parts. Um, I was somebody who was sort of a skeptic and really believed that uh, Robert Mueller was going to do the lion's share of sort of fact-finding work and, uh, you know, congressional oversight, you know, maybe could uh, mount a little bit more political pressure here and there, but they really weren't going to put substantial new information on the table for the American public. And, uh, you know, sort of at every step of the way, um, that's been wrong. So the, the SSCI uh, report related to sort of the technical details of election interference um, really, really laid out in, in substantially more detail uh, sort of the, the specific efforts of uh, and non-efforts of sort of uh, states election interference that have been targeted. Um, and, you know, so there, there's been a lot of information and it, sort of throughout this entire process. That said, they clearly saved the juiciest and most damaging stuff for last. Um, so I agree with you. I think one thing that's sort of um, remarkable about this report is that we have it at all and that Marco Rubio and SSCI Republicans let this go out the door. Yes, they you know needed to put sort of this no collusion political spin on a document that describes lots and lots and lots of collusion, um, you know, but, but the mere fact that we have at least a sufficiently functioning bipartisan consensus on the Senate Intelligence Committee to to release this document, um, that is far more optimistic than we've had any reason to be sort of over the past 18 months, I would say. Yeah, so I think one thing that's really worth sort of digging in on is this new information related to kind of collusion. And of course, we use collusion in air quotes here. Um, There's new detail in here. 
And a little bit there's the hanging question of how did Mueller miss this stuff? Is what we're seeing here that Mueller actually didn't fully finish his job? Or are what we're seeing at work the uh, the fact that there is a stand there is a lower standard of proof required than in a criminal context? And so, yeah, Mueller had this information, but he wasn't willing to make it public or he wasn't willing to sort of to, to put logical inferences on the table that the SSCI is. Um, the SSCI, though, is, is really leaning forward on Konstantin Klimnik. They are directly described him as a Russian intelligence asset. Um, they're really leaning forward, forward on the question of Paul Manafort and his sort of counter, the counterintelligence threat posed by Manafort's involvement in the campaign. They say that Manafort's involvement in the GRU hacking and dumping operation is unknown. Um, that's r- sort of really significant sort of new detail that they're putting on the, on the table. Um, and then, of course, there's sort of a, a collection of information related to Donald Trump personally. Um, I think most most significantly that Donald Trump did in fact talk to Roger Stone about WikiLeaks. Um, that's something that Donald that Trump had uh, denied to Mueller in writing um, in a context in which uh, being dishonest uh, is uh, is a criminal is a criminal offense. Well, he didn't deny it, right? He said he didn't remember any he, such He said he didn't remember. That said, I do think the presentation of the facts in the report um, make it uh, almost impossible to credit the idea that somebody could have forgotten that, those series of conversations. And, and it makes it really difficult to understand why Robert Mueller didn't uh, at least push for additional clarification, considering the really, really remarkable disconnect between the facts and the president's representations about uh, his recollections of those facts. Um, you know, it, it also, I think, now raises a really significant question because, of course, this is pretty powerful evidence of what Trump motive might have been in commuting Roger Stone's sentence um, and that the motive was largely self-interested in order to, of course, prevent or reward Roger Stone from providing testimony uh, that would suggest that Donald Trump had not been honest in his sworn statements, uh, not to mention testimony that was substantively damaging. Um, you know, and, and even Bill Barr in sort of his confirmation hearings had uh, had acknowledged that that kind of activity uh, by the president of the United States would be uh, potentially criminal. Um, so I think there's there's a lot here. Um, there's a lot to sort of mull over. The big question is, does any of it matter now? We're well past the point of anything but electoral accountability being at play. There is a highly divided information ecosystem, and there's no reason to believe that anything in this report is uh, going to pierce through sort of the, the Fox News bubble and really change people's minds about what happened in 2016. Um, that said, I, I do think it's significant to the extent that it is a major bipartisan report that fundamentally validates the major findings of the Mueller report at a moment in which there is a broad campaign underway to sort of undermine and discredit the Russia investigation generally. Um, And this report with Marco Rubio and his fellow Republican members' names on it makes that project that's sort of being carried out by Bill Barr and Devin Nunes and others uh, far, far more difficult, you know, to to sort of maintain and 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 to the extent that it uh, it it makes that more difficult, I, I do think it is still significant, sort of, and, and has an impact in an immediate sense. Steve, so I, I mean, I think I agree with with everything Susan said. I actually wanted to add one other point, which is I, I was struck, separate from the the factual reaffirmation and indeed additional context that that that, that, the, that the parts I've read provided, 
There's one Republican member of the committee who clearly, you know, uh, endorsed the report and who did not sign on to the two-page PR statement um, that the other members put out at the very end that, you know, just to make sure we don't miss the point, bolds and italicizes the, the finding of no collusion that the report actually found. Um, and that's Susan Collins. And, and I, I actually think, you know, to, the, to Susan's last point about the, you know, the ramifications, I'm, I'm really surprised not that Susan Collins declined to endorse that nonsense two-page thing at the end of the report. I'm surprised she didn't make a bigger deal out of it. I mean, here we have, you know, Susan Collins who voted for more witnesses, right? And Susan Collins who, you know, is running a very tight Senate campaign. And she's not out there. She's not out there making a big deal out of this. That to me is actually as powerful sign of anything of just how far past we are, this actually being a thing to anyone but each side perpetuating their own narrative. Steve, uh, I believe there were two senators who didn't sign that. Uh, Richard Burr, who was the chairman for much of this, I believe, did not sign that statement either. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what to make of Burr because you know Burr at the moment isn't acting isn't acting as chairman, and so I don't know I don't know whether to make of Burr's non-signing it that he didn't sign it because he didn't he wanted to not endorse it or that he just wasn't putting his name on any part of what came out yesterday. So I'm you know I'm confident about that assessment with Collins. I don't know what to make of the Burr non non-signature. Okay, so that's a really interesting point about Susan Collins, though, Steve, because, as you noted, she is in a tight race. She has earned a lot of ire back home, and her state is not, you know, an ideologically Trumpian or conservative state. And she's always had to sort of tack back and forth. And so this is maybe an interesting example of her trying to tack And therefore, perhaps we shouldn't take it as too much indication of kind of breaking ranks with the White House or with the Republican wall in the Senate that the White House has enjoyed. And so I I guess my (laughs) bottom line about this SSCI report, as I've read, you know, the gleanings from the report that all of you and others have noted in in news coverage and on Twitter, is like... (sighs) Trump got what he wanted in the sense that nobody cares anymore. Like the story is all too complicated. It was all a long time ago. And, you know, no one's really, Roger Stone got pardoned. You know, it's as though it didn't matter. And five volumes of SSCI report and Mueller report and everything else have been the impact of that, what should be the impact of that on our political discourse, on the American public's understanding of President Trump and the campaign that elected him in 2016, and all of the grifters and foreign agents who were swirling around that campaign, all of that is just dissipated like fog in the morning sun. And we're having a 2020 election, which is essentially not engaging any of that at all. Am I wrong? No, I I don't think you're wrong. And to underscore the point, every single one of these reports from indictments to the Mueller report to every volume of the SSCI report has ended with this sort of, uh, you know, suggestion that, hey, this is still happening. We need to care about it moving forward. Um, You know, this is this is really serious. And and we need to have, uh, you know, reforms and proposals and and pass legislation. Um, But the reality is in the intervening four years, nothing has actually no steps have actually been taken to prevent this from happening again, even as we are now dead in the middle of the 2020 campaign. So speaking of 
illegalities and, you know, stuff that hasn't stopped happening uh, just because it's been called out by, oh, Congress and and independent investigators. Uh, the Government Accountability Office has issued a report entitled, quote, Legality of Service of Acting Secretary of Homeland Security and Service of Senior Official Performing the Duties of Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. The conclusion? Not legal. So here's what the uh, GAO wrote. Uh, In the case of vacancy in the positions of secretary, deputy secretary, and undersecretary for management, the Homeland Security Act provides a means for an official to assume the title of acting secretary pursuant to a designation of further order of succession by the secretary. Mr. McAleenan assumed the title of acting secretary upon the resignation of Secretary Nielsen but the express terms of the existing delegation required another official to assume that title. As such, Mr. McAleenan did not have the authority to amend the secretary's existing designation. Accordingly, Messrs. Wolf and Cuccinelli were named to their respective positions of acting secretary and senior official performing the duties of deputy secretary by reference to an invalid order of succession. So DHS has pushed back against this, arguing that it's perfectly fine to have actings upon actings and senior officials performing the duties of actings. Uh, Steve, help. Uh, What the (laughs) heck is going on here? And why is Congress not doing more about it? Can you unpack this for us? Um, I don't think we have long enough, but but I can try. So, uh, you know, DHS said quite a lot more than that. Um, so this all goes back to last April and the very weird circumstances of Kirsten Nielsen's resignation from the secretary of DHS. Folks may remember this happened on a Sunday night in April where Trump sends one of his tweets about how Nielsen's out and Kevin McAleenan is in. The only problem is that at the time that he ousted Nielsen, there was a Senate-confirmed undersecretary for management, and so it was clear that if Nielsen was out, she, Claire Grady, would automatically become the acting secretary. No one in the White House apparently realized this. First, Trump tweets that. Nielsen says, okay, I'm resigning. And then a couple hours later, Nielsen tweets again, I'm actually not resigning. I'm going to stay on for a couple of days to ensure an orderly succession, by which she meant long enough to fire Claire Grady and to rewrite the DHS succession rules to allow McAleenan to succeed her. And Ben, here's the thing. The, the whole thing rises and falls on the fact that she signs the wrong succession order. So on uh, Tuesday, April 9th, the day before she resigns for the second time, Nielsen signs an order that purports to rewrite the DHS succession order, which she has the authority to do under the statute, to put Kevin McAleenan at the time, the Senate-confirmed commissioner of CBP, ahead of Chris Krebs, who was the director of CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Agency, right, and ahead of the, well, I guess it was the TSA director at the time. Um, But instead of signing an order that says this is the order of succession in all cases, the order she actually signs says this is the order of succession in cases of catastrophe. And she doesn't actually touch the order succession in other cases, which would have put Chris Krebs at the top. And this is the point that GAO makes in their opinion on Friday, that whatever she said, what she did was she signed an order that didn't apply 
to her own vacancy. And so McAleenan did not properly succeed her, and McAleenan therefore didn't have the further authority to name Chad Wolf or Ken Cuccinelli. Ben, DHS's response, I mean, I don't know what where it ranks on the pantheon of letters written by the Trump administration, but this is, I, I, folks should read this letter for themselves. It is a seven and a half page screed from Chad Mizell, the senior official performing the duties of the general counsel. Um, I am not usually one to make a big deal out of people being too young for their jobs as someone who is too young for my own job. Um, but Mizell's letter goes after GAO, not for its substance, but for the temerity of having this young lawyer doing most of the analysis. Never mind that Mizell himself graduated from law school in 2013. He says, you guys are biased. He says, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it's the epitome of Trump lawyering where you offer a flatly unconvincing legal argument that might seem superficially plausible to your non-expert supporters, and then you distract everybody with overblown rhetoric, ad hominems, hyperbole, and partisan innuendo. Because their basic position, Ben, is that um, the succession was lawful entirely because McAleenan was sworn in by Nielsen, right? Nielsen, she told everybody McAleenan was going to be her successor, and she swore him in. Therefore, it doesn't matter that she signed the wrong order. It's clear what she intended. To which I say, haven't you all been lecturing us for 30 years about paying attention to text? Doesn't text matter? If Nielsen had sworn me in and said, I am the acting secretary of Homeland Security, would that be conclusive? I mean, there comes a point where you know the legal arguments are just so superficial that it's clear they're not trying to convince anybody. They're just trying to you know stir the, stir the pot. Okay, Steve. So this is Tammy with a, a sort of question on why this all went down the way it went down. Um, is it conceivable that Kirsten Nielsen didn't understand which order she was signing? Or was this an attempt to sign an order that, you know, that followed the demands of the White House, but that wouldn't actually have the impact that the White House wanted it to have? <laughs> what do we think was going on here behind the scenes, in other words, um, what were the actual intentions? I mean, it it might not matter at this point, given that these guys have been able to remain in office. They are flouting this legal opinion and and basically thumbing their nose or or sending a big fat raspberry in the direction of the GAO and of Congress. But I'm still trying to understand the the White House's intent in the way they wanted this succession to go and Nielsen's intent in how she handled it. Yeah, I mean, Tammy, it's, it's the right question. I just I don't think there's any question that they were panicking because they were rushing. Nielsen had not been planning to resign on Sunday, April 7th. Right. The the first word she got that she was out was Trump's tweet. You know, and then she sort of she decides to leave right away. And then everyone realizes she can't because they forgot about who the actual successor was. So, you know, I think from Sunday night to Tuesday afternoon, Tammy, they're all just rushing and sprinting and panicking. And they're going so fast that someone just messed up. I don't think there's any like poison pill here from Nielsen who made a big no, deal no about grand conspiracy. Darn it. Not 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 from her anyway. But you know, to the broader point, I mean I I actually I would resist the notion that this is all just for posterity at this point. I mean, there are at least four pending lawsuits now where actions that DHS has taken in recent months are being challenged, at least in part on the ground that Chad Wolf had no authority to engage in them. 
from from the Portland deployment of CBP officers, which by statute requires the personal approval of the secretary, to the new DACA memo, where they're you know kind of not really fully enforcing the Supreme Court's decision on DACA. These are measures where courts, you know, the GAO opinion doesn't bind anybody. But man, if I'm a district judge and I was already skeptical of the thing I'm being asked to review, and GAO comes along and gives me a gift which is a procedural reason to strike down the thing that I was already skeptical of. You know, I, I think this is going to have real consequences sooner rather than later. And I think the real question for the White House is, are you really going to fight all the way up to the Supreme Court to defend, you know, uh, a, a clear clerical error at the risk of potentially losing all of these policies, which might not be, you know, which by the time the Supreme Court resolves these appointments, it might be, you know, it might be too late to put these policies back into place. Or do you just concede that you messed up, which this White House never does, in the interest of having these policies, you know, put on firmer footing where you can't just say, you know, the DACA, the new DACA memo or the Portland stuff was all was all unlawful just because Chad Wolf wasn't lawfully appointed. Like that's that to me is an interesting question here. And then there's the broader question, which I hope we can say take a minute on about sort of the broader, you know, abdication of the Senate in this whole conversation. Yeah, I mean, Steve, to sort of your last point, I do think that, right, I'm struck that this is yet another case in which we we have to sort of hope that the courts will do Congress's job, right? So if the courts now strike down DHS actions on the basis of vacancies, deficiencies, that's one way to disincentivize this behavior moving forward. So we've basically seen the Trump administration be completely open about this. Like they don't care about the Vacancies Act. Trump prefers acting. Acting gives him more flexibility. Um, you know, they've played these games at the Pentagon. They've done it at DHS. Like they, the idea that they feel any obligation towards the constitutional requirement of advice and consent, like they, they aren't even pretending. Um, and so, or so now we're saying, well, maybe a court will come in and make future administrations or this administration in the future think twice. But really, this is a, an example of Congress. And the Senate in particular, just not caring at all when the executive branch has has really, I think, demonstrated that their compliance with the Vacancies Act, which is designed to reinforce this really, really important element of, of separation of powers and checks and balances, that ultimately the executive branch commitment to that or compliance with it is completely voluntary and that the Senate has done really nothing to assert its own prerogatives. Um, and so I, I'm sort of curious, this is something I, I think that's been um, uh, such an astonishing thing throughout this admin- throughout the Trump administration, uh, really just sort of the, the meekness and weakness. And, and, and I'm lumping Democrats in with this as well, just sort of them shrugging and saying, well, shucks, you know, he didn't give us a secretary to confirm. What are you going to do? You know, do you think that this is going to sort of spur legislative reform? Do you think a court ruling against the administration is going to be enough to to kind of, I don't know, put the genie back in the bottle here and, and actually recreate the at least perception that there's some obligation to go to the U.S. Senate to get confirmation of, of roles that require Senate confirmation. So, uh, Susan, to, to take your second question first, the answer is no. Um, and, and it's no because, you know, losing, as I think they will, the Wolf-Cuccinelli fight, that's actually not even a broad vacancies question. It's just, you know, it's one particular iteration of the Homeland Security vacancies provision that they messed up administratively. Like, that's not going to set any precedent going forward. 
the legislative reform conversation, I think, is a much harder and heavier lift. And it gets to what I think is the, you know, million dollar question that a Biden administration would face on day one, which is to what extent will a Biden administration, if we get there, support legislative reforms that actually lessen the power of the presidency? Because, you know, I think the the reason why Democrats are scared of real vacancy reform is because they can't escape the shadow of Mitch McConnell. And they're terrified of a Democratic president and a Republican Senate that refuses to confirm anybody, where, you know, the reforms to the vacancies laws end up like handicapping the executive branch's ability to function. And I understand that concern, Susan, but I actually think you can legislate around it. I think you can, you know, there are ways to sort of solve this problem There's a way to actually force the president to nominate people if, for example, you say, you know, acting officials for whom there's been no nomination can't exercise the same powers as their predecessors. Like overnight, that would change it, right? If all of a sudden an acting official, when there was no nominee, couldn't rescind a regulation or couldn't promulgate a new regulation, this would end overnight. I think you could also have the Senate actually trying to assert itself. You know, people, I have an an op-ed in the Times today that says this is all the Senate's fault. And, you know, folks are like, why are you blaming the Senate for Trump being Trump? I'm like, because the Senate's allowing Trump to be Trump, right? It's not that, I mean, it's not that the Senate can force him to nominate someone directly, but the Senate has all of this leverage it could exert against the White House, you know, funding, um, nominations the White House wants, like judgeships, right? Any other number of contexts where if the Senate were actually interested in preserving its institutional role, it could push back. Look at Anthony Tata, you know, for for one of the few times in the Trump administration, um, the Senate was ready to block a Trump nominee, right? Inhofe himself, who was the chair of the Senate Armed Services Committee, said, you know, I have real concerns about this nominee. So what does Trump do? He pulls him and just names him senior official performing the duties of the deputy. And Inhofe says, literally, in response to this, um, I want to find the exact quote. Um, He says, while I've always stressed the need to have Senate-confirmed leadership in top Pentagon positions, I believe it's within the president's authority to appoint DOD officials when and as appropriate. Like, no. (laughs) So I think it's a two-phase legislative reform. One, Congress should tighten the powers of acting officials, at least in cases in which there's been no nominee, forget if they're confirmed or not. But two, you know, the Senate, I I think the Senate has to, you know, put on its big boy pants and remember that it actually has an institutional responsibility that exists even when the president's on their own team. Okay. So, Steve, I I hear you on all that. I'm not going to disagree that the Senate has abdicated its role. I think that's something that we've discussed ad nauseum, frankly, since the beginning of the Trump administration. But I think that there are some fundamental political reasons why the scenario that you are calling for is not going to come about. Number one, I think you're right to call out the sort of traumatic legacy that congressional Democrats have about uh, having a Democratic president who's stonewalled by a Republican Senate for whatever reason. And I'm I'm not quite sure I fully understand it myself. That experience in the Obama administration really did create a kind of um, uh, self-censorship almost for a congressional Dem. But I think we have to remember that Americans like divided government, that it is more the norm than the exception that Congress and the White House are held by different parties. And when members of Congress have the option to exercise the kind of leverage you're describing over an administration in order to assert their own authorities and their own prerogatives, 
they're not going to do it on process and they're almost never going to do it on personnel unless those personnel symbolize some policy outcome or some political issue that is particularly meaningful to their constituencies. That Congress is going to exercise its leverage on substance because that's what it has to run on. No one in Congress is going to go back to their district and say, reelect me because I kept the acting assistant attorney general from becoming the Senate confirmed. You know, that's it's just not it doesn't work politically. Tammy, are you saying that senators are not courting the key Steve Vladek VRA vote? The FVRA. Yeah, I'm just uh, all I'm saying is that at the end of the day, Congress is about getting shit done. And even though we process people are very focused on, and I think that this this administration has given perhaps some of the clearest illustrations that we could ever hope for in explaining to the American people why process and personnel matter in government. I still don't think that that is going to be compelling enough incentive for members of Congress to focus on that stuff rather than the policy wins or even more, the pork wins. So I'll just say really quickly, I don't think I actually disagree with with most of that. I'll just say all the more reason for Congress to do one set of front end reforms to anticipate the fact that they're not going to care about how this plays out on the back end. And just, you know, to to put in the plug, I mean, there's at least one member of Congress who's beating the drum and who has a very loud drum, and that's Katie Porter. And, you know, so Katie Porter has a bill that I think would actually be a very, very good series of steps. It has a ton of co-sponsors. You know, it's not going anywhere in this Congress, but I guess I haven't given up the ghost that there's at least a front end set of, of, of structural reforms that Democrats might get behind, you know, in a scenario where they have one party rule next year, entirely because they understand, and we all understand now very, very well, how the back end is never going to be the place where there's political hate to be made. Yeah, I'll just say in defense of that view, uh, the Federal Vote uh, Vacancies Reform Act itself was a response to, uh, among other things, a controversy during the Clinton administration where Clinton uh, installed a fellow named Bill Lan Lee as uh, the uh, head of the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department after Congress had rejected or refused to confirm him for that position. And so, you know, Congress is not incapable of legislating in this area. The constellation of forces need to be right. And right now, the constellation of forces are wrong because the institutional interests of Senate Republicans conflicts with the political interests of the Republican Party, which is kind of like Belarus, in this, oh, <laughs> it's good. Look, not Shane quality, but pretty solid. No, no, I, I I'm going to stand by it. You know, like you have in in the Senate, a situation where the immediate political interests conflict with the structural interests. In in Belarus, you have a situation where you know Vladimir Putin's long-serving near abroad. Uh, I don't know what to call Lukashenko, strongman or a sort of like Stalin wannabe is at odds with his, uh, I have lost the train of this completely. Anyway, Belarus, uh, the one country where, uh, unlike the United States, where the people have figured out how to push back against Russia, 
So it's been long under the yoke of of Putin's Russia and even before Putin's Russia. Uh, the Belarusian people are now out in the streets in Minsk and all over the country. Uh, strikes, uh, major protests all over the latest stolen election by uh, Mr. Lukashenko. Tamara, get us started. How big a deal is this and and what do you make of it? I think this is a pretty big deal. Whether it will end up being transformative for Belarus, I don't know. But this is a really, really interesting illustration of how a lot of autocratic regimes ultimately fall, which is that they miscalculate, they get overconfident. So Lukashenko has been in power for 26 years. He's been a brutal strongman, incredibly repressive. Ultimately, the person that he ended up running against is the wife of the political organizer who wanted to run against him and who was disqualified and, and I think driven out of the country. So he calls this election, he rigs it, and immediately, you know, as the polls close, sends his thugs out to arrest citizens, not even people who are actively protesting or actively trying to monitor the vote counting, but simply those who are showing up at the polling stations to find out what happened because he had cut the internet and so nobody could look online. So he arrests, you know, dozens and dozens of people that first night, and that is the trigger for more and more protests that mount over the course of the week following the election. Ultimately, he ends up arresting thousands of people. His thugs are beating them into signing confessions. Um, in the protests, they are shooting shock grenades and rubber bullets at point-blank range, so they are literally blowing people's hands off with stun grenades uh, and killing people with stun grenades at protests. And this just creates such a wave of anger from the population that over the course of a week, there's this massive popular mobilization of people organizing to bring food to people in prison, of medical doctors organizing to provide care at protests immediately when people are shot or beaten, lawyers, you know, providing assistance um, and people collecting information. And by the weekend, uh, Lukashenko tries to go and do a visit at a factory and he is basically booed out of the place. And there's a massive demonstration on Sunday whereupon a whole lot of sectors of the economy join a general strike, including the, the state controlled media. Um, which goes off the air and starts playing music. So this snowballs very, very quickly from an arrogantly rigged election and an arrogant display of coercive power into a mass popular mobilization against a longtime dictator. And if you want to get a sense for how this works at the individual kind of psychological level, you should read this great piece by Masha Gessen in this week's New Yorker about what happened over the course of this week. But I guess I would say I'm not sure it's transformative because I think that there are three huge questions on which will turn the fate of this domestic mobilization. It's very unlikely that this domestic mobilization in itself can succeed against Lukashenko unless it can somehow 
persuade the security services to stop defending the regime. That's how people power revolutions bring down autocratic regimes. And there's no evidence that that is going on in Belarus so far. That means that the role of external powers is very, very important um, because security services, you know, may not be swayed by public protest or patriotism, but they might be swayed by security threats from outside. And so, you know, question one, where is Putin? He hates color revolutions, but is he going to intervene to save Lukashenko or would he, you know, be happy to see Lukashenko fall and then make his influence felt in the aftermath? Number two, democratic Europe. They say they're going to tighten sanctions on Belarus, but can they really do anything meaningful to support democracy there when they've been unable to control democratic backsliding in Hungary and Poland who are inside the European Union? And then, of course, there's the United States. Typically, like on Earth 2, where Trump is not president, the United States would be very vocal right now supporting the right to public protest, supporting the need for free and fair elections. And Secretary Pompeo came out and said, the election's not free and fair, and we support the Belarusian people. But can we meaningfully support them with this administration that makes love to dictators and has no credibility on these issues? Tammy, as like a, a potentially dumb question of clarification, what is the immediate remedy that either the protesters in the streets or Western governments would be asking for? Is it the recognition of the opponent candidate as having been lawfully elected? Is it reholding elections? Is it simply not, you know, beating and torturing protesters? Sort of one of the um, the difficulties, I think, of, of sort of a Western audience understanding uh, these, these popular uprising movements is understanding sort of the context of what the the immediate demand is? Yeah, no, the immediate demand is for fresh elections that would be held under international observation to, you know, that would be more free and more fair. A couple of additional observations about Belarus. Um, first of all, you know, there was a long period of time when we were all optimistic about democracy being the wave of the future, where Belarus was this kind of weird authoritarian i mean it was the he lukashenko was the last dictator in europe and you know at a time when essentially all of europe had become democratic uh he had this kind of one man authoritarian rule island in this one former soviet republic and it was very striking and now ironically you know, Poland has engaged in very significant democratic backsliding. Hungary has engaged in arguably even more democratic backsliding. And the vanguard of democratic, you know, people power protests is Belarus. And I, I think that's actually an interesting maybe harbinger that the era of the new attraction of authoritarianism may have its uh, limits as well. And maybe, you know, this may be the crest of it, uh, or at least one can hope. The second thing is about Vladimir Putin. You know, uh, Putin is a person who uh, the Russians care about their near abroad enormously. And these countries that are, that we think of as independent countries, but they do not. They think of them as the uh, you know, part of the former Soviet Union, but even 
beyond that, the, the, the countries that buffer between Russia and the rest of the world are extremely important to the Russian way of thinking about foreign policy. And the question that, that Tamara raises of whether Putin cares about Lukashenko or whether he merely cares about Belarus, it strikes me as the right one. We saw what he did in Ukraine when that country seemed to be getting away from him, which is to lop off a big chunk of it and make sure that Russia sort of still had control over eastern Ukraine. You know, Belarus is closer in. And, you know, so how he will understand uh, what Russia's ultimate vital interests are there, uh, I think, has a lot to say about what these protesters will eventually be able to accomplish. And, you know, today there were some reports of little green men starting to uh, show up in in Minsk or in Belarus. I don't know how credible those are, but I think we really need to have an eye on what Putin's uh, play in, in this context looks like. So at the risk of at the risk of not actually meaningfully adding to this conversation, I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I, I come from a very Belarusian family. Um, all eight of my great grandparents actually lived somewhere in present day Belarus, what was then the, the Russian Empire at the time they, they immigrated. Um, so I, I find this deeply sad and optimistic and sad all in the same breath, which is a remarkable place to be in you know the the only thing i would say sort of coming away from this is it's 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 fascinating to think about what the u.s might have done if the u.s had credibility and an interest in actually you know putting putting teeth behind pompeo's very i thought weak statement but it's a you know it's it's yet a further lesson in the demise of soft power yeah i mean you know people particularly a lot of Russians, think of Belarus as a backwater now. But in the history of American Judaism, Belarus is, you know, one of the places that huge numbers of people came from. And, you know, my family has Belarusian ancestry as well. My my, uh, my 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 great grandfather was actually he 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 came up in in Russian Jewish politics in Minsk at the turn of the the turn of the 20th century. There you go. All right. And with that. Let's turn to object lessons. Susan, do you have an object lesson? I do have an object lesson. My object lesson is that Lawfare is publishing a book, which is very exciting for us. Um, We are uh, trying our hand uh, at publishing a book that's going to come out not just in ebook format, but there's going to be a paperback version as well. Um, It's by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith and is entitled After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency. And it'll be released on September 15th um, and is a really serious and important examination of what exactly where exactly we go from here. Um, And I say this not just as the Lawfare executive editor, but also as someone who just wrote a book entitled Unmaking the Presidency. Um, I think the question of how do we reconstruct the office moving forward um, is really incredibly urgent. And this is the most serious and detailed uh, and thoughtful examination of the questions at the heart of that, um, uh, certainly that I've seen yet. And I really think it's going to be a significant contribution to to that really important discussion. So um, you can pre-order it on Amazon. um, And we're just, we're very excited to try our hands uh, in the publishing world. Indeed. So I have two object lessons. Um, 
which uh, one is comical and the other is cool and serious. The comical object lesson is a tweet from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, speaking of Jewish history, back around the time that Steve's ancestors were in Jewish politics in Minsk, the Tsar's secret police forged the protocols of the elders of Zion, perhaps the most famous anti-Semitic and influential anti-Semitic tract in history. And um, recently, somebody foia'd from the FBI its files on, on the protocols of the elders of Zion. And the uh, FBI today released its files on the subject, but it did so by dumping them into its FOIA vault and tweeting the name of the file that it had released, which is the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And so all over the country, people saw today an FBI tweet announcing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. I am sure this is not an example of malevolence, simply an example of perhaps an errant uh, bot or perhaps somebody who had no idea what the context of what they were releasing was, but it sure is a jarring tweet and uh, the FBI should probably be a little bit more careful about how it uh, releases sensitive material like that in the future. But they refuse to learn their lesson on this. This happens like every few months that the bot tweets something and creates this like huge kerfuffle on Twitter. It's like, just take your bot down, guys. It's not that hard. Or even just have a person review it before it goes out. If you're the FBI and you tweet the protocols of the elders of Zion, I'm trying to think of like what the what the equivalent to that is. It would be like tweeting, you know, a racial inferiority tract without any context. Mein Kampf. Yeah, exactly. Mein Kampf from the FBI. Uh, anyway, like, not well done, guys. Uh, don't get too worked up about it, Twitter. Nobody was, uh, nobody was uh, trying to kill the Jews. Well, nobody knew. Exactly. My serious object lesson in honor of Steve Vladek's presence uh, on the uh, show today is a new memo from the Department of Homeland Security's General Counsel's Office in response to an article that Steve Vladek and I wrote a few weeks ago, identifying this document and analyzing this document, which they quaintly called a job aid, which was actually interpretive guidance about how you could now conduct surveillance of people in the interests of protecting monuments, including Confederate monuments. Uh, the new uh, document sent on August 14th reads, we have determined that in applying INAs, that's the intelligence arm, collection and reporting authorities to threats to damage or destroy any public monument, memorial, or statue, rather than to the narrower category of threats to damage, destroy, or impede federal government facilities, the subject job aid created confusion where it was supposed to provide clarity. Although <laughs> there is more than one view regarding INA's authority in this area, we consider the narrower interpretation to better align with the threats of concern to INA. As such, 
the subject job aid is hereby rescinded. So it's a little nice little memo. And Steve, uh, we should we should write together more often. Uh, apparently, we can accomplish things when we write together. <laughs> apparently so. Uh, Steve, do you have an object lesson? I, I, mine is actually also about the Department of Homeland Security, as it turns out. Uh, so, so my object lesson is the the special anniversary that we should all celebrate this Saturday. Uh, this Saturday is the 500th straight day in which there will not be a Senate-confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, and indeed, as we mentioned, there hasn't even been a nominee. That is the longest cabinet vacancy ever. Um, and I think it is deeply consistent with many of the pathologies of the administration that we've talked about today and that you guys have talked about before. And strikes me as an object lesson for all of the, or at least many of the institutional failures that have allowed the Trump administration to get away with so much mischief, including job aid memos masquerading as guidance uh, from the Department of Homeland Security. So object lesson, whether anyone learns it, that's the, 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 harder, the harder question. So maybe the object lesson out of your object lesson, Steve, is that we don't need a Department of Homeland Security. I mean, you know, it, it, I'm certainly one who has never quite understood the the wisdom of putting, you know, 417 different federal components with different missions under one roof. But that, that's certainly another conversation to have. All right. And that brings us to the end of the show. You've squandered another hour of your life listening to Rational Security, as the Car Talk guys used to say. Rational Security is brought to you by Lawfare, new book publisher Lawfare. And uh, you can find our show notes on the show page. You can get Rational Security merch at thelawfarestore.com, including our awesome new Rational Security Rocks glasses, 10 of which showed up at Shea Wittes this week. Our audio engineer this episode is Zachary Frank of the famed goat rodeo firm. Rational Security is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music this week was performed by Alexander Lukashenko in his stirring rendition of Peggy Lee's 1969 song, Is That All There Is? Uh, he was backed up by the near abroads. You should tweet about rational security, share us on social media, and you should leave us that five-star review. You might begin it by saying, I really don't like it when Wittis guests hosts rational security, because unlike Shane, he's terrible at the credits. But, etc., 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 we are off next week. So I won't close out by saying we'll talk to you again next week, but I will say we'll be back two weeks from now, and so will Shane. And so you'll have a much smoother outro than I'm doing right now. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 